Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. I hope everyone's doing well, all things considered. On today's episode, we'll start with the news around Europe, Italy, and Napoli, as we always do. We've just about covered all of the major transfer stories, so I'm going to change up the structure just a little bit. I'll still cover the transfers in the Napoli News segment, but there aren't really any transfer talks left to do. So I'm going to move the classic Napoli match up to part two, and today we're going to talk about Napoli versus Frosinone from the 2015-2016 season. And in part three, I'll introduce a new feature segment where I'll take an in-depth look at a particular aspect of the club, and today's feature will be about the Stadio San Paolo. So starting in England, two more Premier League players have tested positive for COVID-19 after the second round of tests were completed. That brings the total number of positive cases up to 8 out of the 996 people that were tested, which is still a very good ratio at just under 1%. I previously mentioned how Borussia Dortmund's sporting director said that Dortmund players would be free to choose whether they want to play or not, while Liverpool's manager Jurgen Klopp is taking the same approach. He told Sky Sport that his players are free to choose if they want to play, and if they choose not to, there will be no fines or disciplinary measures. And Liverpool had finally admitted that using the government furlough program was a mistake. In France, Ligue 1 has scheduled the start of the 2020-2021 campaign for August 22nd. Not really sure how I feel about that. I suppose it's only a week before the other leagues are hoping to start their new seasons, though I don't actually expect them to start in September. Lyon's president Jean-Michel Aulas was back in the news. In an interview with French media outlet L'Equipe, he said, In reality, what was said in the wave of meeting was patience. 
When I see that we had French football representatives who were present and who took different conclusions, you think to yourself that we must be idiots. Excuse me for the term. Javier Tebas, who, for those who don't know, is the president of La Liga, said that a permanent stoppage would be a nightmare and that would only serve those who had personal interests. The health protocols are today merely normal tools. UEFA have gone as far as producing their own protocol, which we are not even looking at in France. It's an absolute scandal. Meanwhile, Lyon have returned to training, though, to prepare for their Champions League match against Juventus. Speaking of Tebas, he wasn't too happy to find out that four Sevilla players, Ever Banega, Lucas Ocampos, Franco Vasquez, and Luke de Jong, had been seen hanging out in a group of 12, which exceeds the maximum permitted gathering size of 10, and all four players have issued public apologies. And this story broke not too long after Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez announced that now is the time to restart the economy and that La Liga can resume as of June 8th, and the current plans are to resume on the 11th. Moving on to Serie A, Spadafora has confirmed that the Technical and Scientific Committee has approved the protocols for group training, and they've now received the protocols for resuming matches, which are very similar. He also said that the possible dates to resume Serie A are either June 13th or June 20th, and a decision on that will be made in the meeting scheduled for the 28th. And I assume this means that if they choose the 13th, it will be by way of some special exemption, as last week the Italian government announced that all sporting events would be closed until the 14th. We mentioned last time that one option to end the season is with the playoffs and playouts. According to Gazzetta dello Sport, none of the presidents like the idea of a playoff to determine the champion. Lecce coach Fabio Liberani is also opposed to having five substitutions, as he feels it gives the deeper clubs an unfair advantage. So the restart seems to be heading in the right direction. Another issue that's heading in the wrong direction is broadcasting rights. The latest update is that the main dispute is between Serie A and Sky. The Zone and IMG are merely asking for the fees to be deferred, not waived, which I think is perfectly fair. Matches are not being broadcast right now because they're not being played. Broadcasters should be allowed to pay when the matches are played. There are also discussions about the next three-year contract where the clubs are seeking to earn a billion euros per year, whereas Sky is seeking a discount in the neighborhood of 120 to 140 million euros per year. Finally, Domiano Tomasi, president of the Players Association, spoke to Sky Sport about player wages and contracts. Regarding wages, he explained that each league has to be treated differently, which makes sense. Serie A players can afford to defer payments for six months and not be impacted, but this is not the case for Lega Pro players. Regarding contracts, he talked about something that everyone appears to be ignoring, which is the subject of contracts expiring on June 30th. On this, he said a legal extension is impossible, but a gentleman's agreement is an option, but I don't see why you couldn't just extend contracts until the season is played out. The bigger issue is what do you do with players like Patania and Rahmani that have already been sold to another club or others that have already been loaned out. Moving on to Napoli news, like many other clubs, Liazzuri returned to group training on Friday. During Saturday's session, both Alan and Fernando Llorente were given special training because of muscle fatigue, and this is starting to become a little bit concerning. We've already seen Manolas and Fabian suffer muscle injuries, though I haven't heard much in terms of Fabian's situation. In fact, we don't even know if he sustained an injury. All I heard was that he had to stop training, so hopefully it was something like a cramp and nothing serious. Meanwhile, Arkadouj Milik transfer rumors continue to be a hot topic, perhaps even more so with Merton's extension just about confirmed. 
According to Adjapro News, Malik is still more likely to stay than to leave. They have the odds of Malik staying at 2 to 1. A move to Juventus is not too far behind at 2.75 to 1, while the odds of Malik going to Atletico Madrid are 5 to 1. Bayern Munich is at 12 to 1, and Chelsea, Tottenham, and PSG are at 16 to 1. As for other clubs in Italy, Inter are at 25 to 1, and Milan are at 50 to 1. La Repubblica is reporting that Milik is annoyed that the club continues to shop around for strikers. They previously courted Icardi, and now they're renewing Mertens, which leads Milik to conclude that the club has their doubts about him. He does not want to be a high-end supporting striker. Now, for all I know, that could all be entirely made up, but if it's true, then I don't really like the player's attitude, and I'd be pretty quickly showing him the door. This is a player who has only had success more recently and prior to that was plagued by injuries so of course the club is going to shop around. At this point hopefully you could get 50 million euros for him but if you need to reduce that to 45 million or even the original price of 40 million then De Laurentiis should do that because the last thing you want to happen is to have Milik play to the end of his contract and then walk away for free because it doesn't look like he wants to play in Napoli anymore. Since we're talking about transfers, this is a good spot to address the questions we've received from our friend Eddie, who sent in a few great questions, so thank you for that, Eddie. The first one is, if the rumors that AC Milan have put Kessie on the market with a 25 million euro price tag, what are your thoughts on Napoli taking a run at him? I like him as a replacement for Alan. I know a first-team center back and a backup striker are the primary needs, but I just don't think you can pass up a player like Kessie at that price, especially if we lose Alain or Fabian. Okay, so this rumor started in early April when the papers were speculating about a possible swap where Napoli would send Milik to Milan in exchange for Kessia. And I very briefly touched on this with my transfer talk on Milik, but I didn't spend much time on Kessia other than to say I didn't think the swap would happen. Instead, I focused more on the concept of the swap. So let's work through this one a little bit. Milan has since dropped out of the race for Milik, and as I mentioned a moment ago, Napoli is still the odds-on favorite, but Juventus are probably where he'll end up, maybe Atletico. But that doesn't mean that Napoli couldn't just buy Kessie outright. Milan could certainly use the cash, and Napoli will have in the neighborhood of 200 million euros to spend if they sell Koulibaly, Milik, Alan, Gulam, and Yunus, so Napoli can certainly afford it. Okay, so let's say Napoli were considering buying Kessie. The first question I'd ask myself is, where would Gattuso play him? Eddie correctly pointed out that Kessia could potentially backfill Alain or Fabian, which is a simple point, but also a pertinent one. If you think of Alain and Fabian as positions on the pitch, there are really only two options for Kessia, holding midfielder or attacking midfielder. When he played under Gattuso at Milan, Kessia most often played on the left side of the midfield in the 4-3-3 formation. Those attacking midfielder roles are currently occupied by Zielinski and Fabian, so certainly if Fabian is sold, then a position becomes available, but I don't really see Fabian going anywhere. De Laurentiis is doing the same thing with Fabian that he originally did with Koulibaly and Alain, which is to basically price them out of the market because he doesn't really want to sell them. So that means Kessie would be a backup, and he might actually be second in line behind Elif Elmas. We also have Amin Yunus returning from his loan spell in France, though most expect him to be sold or loaned out again. This year we saw Stefano Pioli have some success using Kessia in a holding midfielder role, so in that case he could be a potential replacement for Alain, but even in that role he'd be relegated to the backup position with Demme being the clear starter, 
And at this point, he could even be the second backup as Napoli just bought Stanislav Loboka, who I personally really like. So we've established that if we did buy Kese, he'd be a substitute. The next question I would ask is, what could we expect from the player? Now, I am by no means an expert on Milan, and stats do not tell the whole story, so I reached out to someone who is, and that's Rui Pereira. Rui is one of the hosts of the excellent Red Card Report podcast, where he and the other host, Joe Capuano, do an excellent job covering not only Serie A, but also the EPL, La Liga, the Portuguese Primera Liga, and most important right now, the German Bundesliga. So that's where I get all my Bundesliga updates, and I encourage you guys to check out their podcast at rcr underscore podcast. So Rui is a huge Milanista, so I asked him to tell me a bit about Frank Kessia and how he's been for Milan since he joined the club on loan in 2017. And this is what Rui had to say, and I quote, I feel that Kessia plateaued ever since he joined Milan. We've been waiting all this time for him to really maximize his potential. He's always been that box-to-box player. He's average all around and has a lot of energy. He had a couple of good performances after the signing of Ibrahimovic, but outside of that, he's just been consistently average. So that wasn't exactly a glaring review. Now, I recognize that Milan has been a difficult place to play with the constant changes in coach and sporting directors. So I also asked Rui which coach out of Gattuso, Giampaolo, and Pioli could get the most out of Cassie. And he said it would have to be Gattuso, then Pioli, and then Giampaolo. And Eddie actually had the same take that Gattuso can get the best out of him. And we also know that Gattuso likes Cassia. So who knows? As Rui alluded to, Cassia probably has not realized his full potential yet. Also, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you know that with the current makeup of this team, I prefer for new signings to be players who have not reached their primes yet. So somewhere between the age of 18 and 24, let's say, and Cassia is 23. So he's in that window. Given the position he plays and Rui's assessment, it's clear to me that he would be a backup for Napoli. So with that in mind, the last question I would ask is what's the right price? We know the price tag Milan has put on him is 25 million euros. Now Arsenal have been following Kessie for a while, but they're only willing to pay 20 million euros for him. And typically the English clubs are willing to pay the most. So for me, that means if Napoli were to take a run at Kessie, they would probably want to pay somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 million euros. Eddie also had a follow-up question as well. He said, there's also Mateus Henrique from Gremio. While they are watching Everton, do you think Napoli has eyes on him as well? I'll keep this one a bit shorter. I haven't seen any reports linking Napoli to Enrique, but it wouldn't shock me if they were watching him and a host of other players around the world as well. And certainly if they have a scout watching Everton Suarez, then you would expect the scout is keeping an eye out for other talent. From the quick search that I did, it seems that Manchester City have eyes on Enrique, so if that's true, then good luck trying to sign him. So thanks again, Eddie, for the questions. I'm happy to answer them. Before I close this segment, let's wish club president Aurelio De Laurentiis a very happy birthday. He may be pazzo sometimes, and he's definitely a stubborn pain in the ass, but I would take De Laurentiis over an Elliott group or a Suning group or a James Palota any day of the week. So that's it for part one. In part two, we'll review another classic Napoli match.
Okay, so today's classic Napoli match is Napoli versus Frosinone from the 2015-2016 campaign. This was actually the final match of the season. Heading into the match, Napoli was sitting in second place, only two points clear of Roma in third. And at the time, only the top two clubs would enter the group stage of the Champions League, whereas the third place club would have to play in the qualifying round. So this was still a meaningful game for Napoli. Meanwhile, Frosinone were sitting in 19th place, five points back of the safe zone, so their fate had already been determined, and they had absolutely nothing to play for. Maurizio Sarri, who was in his first season at the helm of Napoli, lined up in his usual 4-3-3. In goal was Pepe Reina. From left to right, the back line was Fauzi Gulam, Vlad Krishis, Kaladu Koulibaly, and Elsie Kusai. In the midfield were Alan, Jorginho, and captain Marek Hamsik. And the front three were Lorenzo Insigne, Gonzalo Higuain, and Jose Callejon. Frosinone, managed by Roberto Stallone, played in a 4-4-2 with Massimo Zappino in goal. The back four were Roberto Crivello, Leonardo Blanchard, Adriano Russo, and Matteo Ciofani. In the midfield were Oliver Kragel, who had an excellent season this year at Benevento, by the way, Paolo San Marco, Mirko Gori, and club captain Alessandro Frara. And up top were Federico Dionisi and Daniele Ciofani. Benvenuti allo Stadio San Paolo! 38esima e ultima giornata di Serie A Team, benvenuti a Napoli. Frosinone, un match che ha tanti significati. Getting into the match, Iguain nearly opened the scoring in the fifth minute, but his close range effort just missed the near post. Arguably, the biggest development of the match occurred in the 13th minute when Frosinone's Mirko Gori was shown a straight red. After what was an obvious foul on Insigne, a frustrated Gori kicked the ball in the direction of the referee which was enough to see him shown off. Napoli dominated the match after that. Insigne nearly opened the scoring in the 19th minute. He received Hamsik's pass at the top of the box with his back to the goal, turned and hit a powerful strike towards the far post, but was denied by the woodwork. In the 32nd minute, Insigne picked up Callejon's trademark run to the back post, but Callejon's volley was stopped by Zappino. Callejon got another opportunity only a minute later on a similar play, but Zappino managed to get a hand on that shot as well. But Frosinone could only hold off the Partenope for so long. In the 44th minute, Napoli would break through. Insigne. Gulam. Il cross per Higuain. Poi Amsic! All'improvviso! Marek Amsic! Napoli avanti! That was Marek Hamsik scoring his 81st goal in Serie A, tying Diego Maradona's record of the most Serie A goals for Liazzuri, and that was pretty much how the first half ended. The second half started out much the same, with Napoli dominating play and working the ball around to create opportunities, and in the 52nd minute, they doubled their lead. Alana, in area di rigore, ancora Alana, il cross per Iguain! Fa tutto Alana! Segna Iguain! A meno uno da Nordal! Diventano 34 gol in 35 partite! 2-0 Napoli! That was Gonzalo Iguain scoring his 34th goal of the season, but it was actually Alan that did most of the work. Calhoun found an unmarked Alan at the top of the box. The Brazilian dribbled past two defenders, then played a low cross just before reaching the goal line, and Iguain volleyed home. Only 10 minutes after that, with the rain pouring down, Napoli would go up 3-0. Isai, cross per Iguain! 
ancora Gonzalo Higuain 35 in 35 come Nordal 3 a 0 Napoli this was classic Sari ball Calihon played the ball back to Kusai on the right wing Kusai gave it to Alan then made a run still on the right wing Alan took a few touches before picking out Kusai's run Kusai played his first touch into the box, and Iguain was the first to the ball. He directed it past Zappino for his second of the match and his 35th on the season. The replay actually showed that Iguain was slightly offside, but the call wasn't made, and Napoli were up 3-0. In the 67th minute, Frosinone nearly pulled one back. Oliver Craigle's free kick from nearly 29 meters out rocked Pepe Reina's crossbar. I actually watched a few of Benevento's games this year, and Craigle is an excellent player. He scored a number of golazzos, and many of them were off of free kicks. In the 69th minute, we saw some more Sadi balls. Gulan played a quick give-and-go with Hamsik, followed immediately by another quick give-and-go with Mertens before taking a shot, but he found too much of the goal, and Zappino made a fairly comfortable save. Then in the 71st minute, Iguain completed his first tripleta of the season, and his third as a Napoli player. Higuain, cerca la gira di Higuain! Trova un gol meraviglioso! Gonzalo Higuain! E nella storia, 36 gol in 35 partite! 36 gol in 35 partite! This goal really came out of nowhere. Hamsik played the ball to Mertens on the left side. Mertens cut in and played a pass for Higuain, but he overhit the pass which forced Iguain to control it with his chest. Iguain did incredibly well, setting himself up for a bicycle kick from the top of the box, which he hit perfectly, catching Zappino off guard and dropping the shot just under the crossbar. Chofani nearly scored in the 78th minute, but Reyna was quick to get off his line and make the save. Napoli would coast to an impressive 4-0 victory, which was a great way to end the season. Non c'è più tempo! Eccola però la fine! Vince Napoli. 4-0 Napoli. A few final comments. Alan had an excellent match, which was a reminder of why his price tag is what it is today. Despite allowing four goals, Zappino actually played quite well in goal for Frosinone, who played most of the match down a man. Like I said earlier, this was still a significant match as the win secured Napoli's place in the group stage of the Champions League, and the win was necessary as Roma defeated Milan on the same day. So Napoli returned to the Champions League after finishing in 5th the previous season. As we know, Iguain's 36 goals remains a Serie A single season record. Ciro Immobile is threatening to break that record this year as he's on 27 goals through 26 games, so we'll see if COVID-19 slows him down. Of course, what we didn't know at the time was that this was Iguain's final match with Liazzuri. So I think most Napoli fans would be content if their hometown boy Immobile broke this record given how things played out with Iguain, This match was also a reminder to me of what beautiful football this club played under Sari, And it was nice to see Sari embracing players throughout the match. He gave Calejon a big hug when he came off, and then he did the same for Iguain after he scored his third goal, and then again with Hamsik when he came off. And look, I know a lot of Napoli tifosi hate both Iguain and Sari for how they left the club and what they did after they left, but I've said this before about Iguain. Nothing about how they left or what they did after they left changes what these two men did for us when they were with the club. That's it for part two. In part three, we'll do our first feature.
today's feature, I'm going to talk a bit about the Stadio San Paolo. Before I even get to that, let me tell you about life before the San Paolo. In 1929, the club's first president, Giorgio Ascarelli, commissioned the construction of the Stadio Vesuvio in Rione Luzzati, which is on the east side of Napoli. And when I say commissioned, I mean he paid out of his own pocket to build a new stadium, which made it the first and only stadium in the club's history to be owned by the club. Can you imagine De Laurentiis paying out of his own pocket to build the stadium? Probably not, because he would never do that. Granted, the Vesuvio was nothing like the modern football stadium. It had a maximum capacity of 20,000, which was actually pretty big for that time, and the stands were made out of wood. Unfortunately, Ascarelli never really got to enjoy the Vesuvio. He passed away only two weeks after it was inaugurated at only 36 years of age. Due to popular demand, the stadium was renamed the Stadio Giorgio Ascarelli in his honor. Shortly after Ascarelli passed, the fascist government in power in Italy at the time requisitioned the stadium. They would later rebuild it in anticipation of the 1934 World Championships. The new stadium had a lot more concrete and nearly doubled in terms of capacity. And that's when it was given its permanent name, the Stadio Partenopeo. Sadly, the reason it was renamed was because Ascarelli was of Jewish descent, and the fascist government did not want the city's biggest venue named after a Jewish person. So it was only appropriate that the stadium was heavily bombed by the Allied forces during World War II, leaving the Partenopeo in a state of disrepair. For the next 17 years, Napoli played out of the Stadio Arturo Colana, which was a familiar ground. This was where Napoli played when there were issues with the Partenopeo, which apparently was quite often. Then in 1959, after seven long years of construction, the Stadio San Paolo finally opened. The new stadium was located in Forigrotta, which was on the west side of Napoli. It was originally planned to be built in Arenaccia, but Napoli's mayor at the time, Achille Lauro, and his administration hijacked the plans and changed the location to Forigrotta because the area was going through a period of suburbanization at the time. The stadium, designed by Napolitan designer Carlo Cocchia, was originally called the Stadio del Sole, or the Stadium of the Sun, and is actually built on volcanic rock. The structure was built with two rings overlooking the field, which could seat 90,000 spectators, and had a racing track surrounding the pitch. The inaugural match at the Stadio del Sole was on December 6, 1959, between Napoli and Juventus, and Napoli won that match 2-1. In 1963, the name was changed to the Stadio San Paolo, and that same year, Napoli hosted its first major event, which was the fourth edition of the Mediterranean Games. The opening and closing ceremonies, as well as the final of the football tournament, were played at the San Paolo. The first major football tournament at the San Paolo was the 1968 European Championship, which was the third edition of the tournament, and the first time it was called the European Championship. Before that, it was called the European Nations Cup. The entire tournament consisted of only eight teams, so the San Paolo only hosted one match, which was Italy's semi-final against the Soviet Union. 68,500 were on hand to watch the match, which Italy won on a coin toss after neither team scored in normal time. Italy went on to defeat Yugoslavia in the final, and the final was actually played twice. There was no penalty shootout back then, so after the game ended 0-0, the entire match was replayed a few days later, and Italy won 2-0. The next major tournament at the San Paolo was the 1980 European Championship. The stadium was modernized for this tournament, including an upgrade of the lighting system and the development of the Posilipo Grandstand. 
Four matches were played at the San Paolo, three in the group stage and one in the knockout round. In Group 1, Netherlands played twice in Napoli, first against Greece in front of 15,000 spectators, and second against West Germany with nearly 30,000 in attendance. In Group 2, Spain versus England had an attendance of about 14,500. The most significant match played at the San Paolo, though, was a third-place match between Italy and Czechoslovakia. 24,652 fans watched Italy eventually lose this match in a penalty shootout that needed nine rounds to decide a winner. That brings us now to the glory days of the 80s and the Maradona era, where it was normal to see 85 to 90,000 people packed in the San Paolo every week. Despite those huge crowds, the stadium was far from perfect. In fact, it was far from being good, especially when you consider the club was competing for Scudetti year in, year out at the time. I read an article from the archives of the Repubblica, written in 1987 that absolutely trashed the San Paolo. The article describes it as, quote, a monument of neglect, dirt, and inconvenience, raised on the altar of the football god but mistreated since 1958, the year of its construction in all respects. The article goes on to talk about the athletic track, which is little used and serves two purposes, to distance the fans from the field and to hold billboards, which obstruct visibility of the fans. There were only five functional washrooms to serve a stadium of 90,000, and a description of the conditions of those facilities was reserved for horror films. Out of the 85,000 seats, only 12,000 were numbered, there was insufficient parking, nothing to eat, and nothing to drink. Thankfully, a year after that article was written, the San Paolo underwent a major renovation in anticipation of the 1990 World Cup to be played in Italy. The renovation included construction of the roof and a new press box, a modernization of the running track and the lighting system, installation of two displays, renovation of all the entrances, construction of an underground multi-level car park, which, by the way, would never end up being used, and upgrades to make the facility compliant with FIFA's safety standards. The World Cup actually began before the renovations had been completed, so the capacity was limited to about 60,000. Napoli hosted five matches, and it was probably no coincidence that the city hosted two Argentina matches in the group stage. Maradona's Argentina defeated the Soviet Union 2-0 in front of 56,000 fans, and drew Romania in front of 53,000 fans. Back then, each team only played each other once, so a win and a draw was not a great record for Argentina, and they finished in third in Group B. But since there were only six groups, four out of the six third-place teams advanced to the knockout stage, and Argentina had been the best of those six. In the round of 16, 50,000 spectators at the San Paolo watched Carlos Valderrama's Colombia squad lose to Cameroon in extra time, and Cameroon played his quarterfinal match at the San Paolo as well, this time against an English squad that included the likes of Paul Gascoigne, Gary Lineker, John Barnes, and Terry Butches. This match also needed extra time, where Lineker scored his second penalty kick of the match to see England through to the semi-finals. The final match of the tournament played at the San Paolo was easily the most famous. Italy took on Argentina, and prior to the match, Maradona famously said that Napolitano people were being asked to be Italian for a day when the other 364 days of the year they're forgotten. Now, I was too young back then, so I don't know if Maradona made other comments in the media, but the story is often told that Maradona had asked the Napoli supporters to cheer for Argentina instead of Italy, which is a pretty loose interpretation of the quote. I suppose you could say that Maradona was insinuating Napolitano people should cheer for Argentina instead of Italy, 
but I don't think this comment should have been as controversial as it ended up being. The truth is that, as Maradona alluded, Napoli was hardly even considered a part of Italy back then, and the Southerners were grossly discriminated against by the Northerners. Meanwhile, in the few years prior to the World Cup, Maradona had delivered two Scudetti and a UEFA Cup, and in Napoli he was considered a god. So when you take that into consideration, I don't think it was such an absurd statement or perhaps prediction for Maradona to make. In the end though, Napolitans chose their country over their hero. A banner was proudly displayed at the San Paolo reading Maradona, we love you, but Italy is our country. Maradona was still touched by the respect the Napolitan supporters showed him and his country. The San Paolo was the only stadium Argentina played in where the fans did not jeer during the playing of the Argentinian national anthem. As far as the match goes, Argentina defeated Italy in penalty kicks. It goes without saying that this was a disappointing result, not just because Italy was the host nation, but also because this squad was amongst the greatest, if not the greatest, Italian national team ever assembled. Let me quickly read through the roster, which included a few Napoli players. In goal, Walter Zenga, Stefano Tacconi, and Gianluca Pagliuca. At the back were Franco Baresi, Giuseppe Bergomi, Riccardo Ferri, Paolo Maldini, Ciro Ferrara, and Pietro Vecowood. In the midfield, Carlo Ancelotti, Fernando Da Napoli, Giuseppe Giannini, Roberto Donadoni, Nicolo Berti, Luigi D'Agostino, Roberto Mancini, and Giancarlo Marocchi. And the attackers were Gianluca Vialli, Andrea Carnevale, Gianluca Schilacci, Aldo Serena, and Roberto Baggio. After the World Cup, the renovations were completed, including adding a third ring to support the new roof, which reduced the capacity of the San Paolo to just under 73,000. This same ring had to be closed in the early 2000s as the vibrations from the fans would travel down the support pylons of the roof, into the ground, and onto the adjacent buildings. That further reduced the capacity to about 60,000. There have been a number of upgrades since, often to appease UEFA. These improvements included a new turf, improvements to the irrigation system, modernization of the hall and the press stand, new LED screens, renovated washroom facilities, new wider seats, which reduced the capacity to about 55,000, replacement of the athletic track, which is now blue, renovated change rooms, and an improved audio and lighting system. Nevertheless, the San Paolo leaves a lot to be desired. Current president Aurelio De Laurentiis has proposed further improvements or even a relocation, but thus far every proposal has been rejected by the municipality. But for all its flaws, the San Paolo remains one of the most hostile venues in all of Europe. In the 2005-2006 season, Napoli set a SETI Chi record for attendance with 51,000 people at one match, and that season only Inter and Milan, who were playing in Serie A, had a higher average attendance than Napoli. In 2017, ahead of Napoli's Champions League clash with Manchester City, Fernandinho described the atmosphere as being similar to those in South America. And we all saw what the atmosphere was like this year for Leo Messi's first ever match at the stadium that Maradona built. In 2018, the club and the city agreed to a five-year lease extension with an option to renew for an additional five years, so it appears the San Paolo will remain Napoli's home for the foreseeable future. So that's going to do it for episode 12. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or if you'd like me to review anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5 
or you can find the pod at Forza Napoli Pod. You can also find my work at worldfootballindex.com. Until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre. Network.